Greetings, friends and brethren. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God. I want to talk about early heretics, early heresies, what happened to the original church. A lot of people think that what they see as Christianity now, or is called Christianity now, resembled what early Christianity was. In reality, it's not the case. The bulk of those who consider themselves Christians don't have the same beliefs or practices that the original Christians had. Now, how did this happen? Was it prophesied? Well, certainly it was prophesied. Uh, nearly every writer in the New Testament recorded warnings about false heretical teachers and or their teachings. The historical reality is that false teachers did arise as Jesus himself foretold they would. And the Christian church was certainly affected early on by false leaders and other heretics. Now, how did these come on in? I'd like to go to uh, 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse 1. Now, a lot of what I'm going to cover is in a book that we have called Beliefs of the Original Catholic Church. And this book, or any other book or booklet I hold up, is available for free at www.ccog.org. That's ccog.org. Go to the literature tab under books and booklets and you'll find them. You can click on them. We don't ask for your email address. You can just click on them and read them as you wish. One of the reasons I'm mentioning this particular book is that in this book, the translations of the Bible that we're using are those that are essentially Catholic translations, either approved most, almost always by either the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. So anyway, I'm going to be reading from 2 Peter 2 from the, the NABRE edition, which is a Roman Catholic source. There were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will introduce destructive heresies and even deny the master who ransomed them, bringing swift destruction in themselves. Many will follow their licentious ways, and because of them, the way of truth will be reviled. Well, the reality is, destructive heretics did arrive. They persuaded people to follow their licentious ways as opposed to the ways of God of the Bible. And the way of truth is reviled now. Those of us who believe in early Christianity are actually considered to be some weird cult. Now, the Apostle John had to deal with uh, problems, false teachers, when he was around. I'm going to go to 1 John 2, I'm going to be verse 19. This time from the Eastern Orthodox Bible. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. If they belonged to us, they would have continued with us. But in fact, they left, so it might be revealed that none of them belonged to us. So there were people who had association with true Christians, but they didn't keep the original practices. John is writing this in the first century, so in the first century, this thing was already starting to happen. Now, if you went to 1 John, now we're going to go to 3 John, also from the, I'll read from the Eastern Orthodox Bible. Starting in verse 9. It's only one chapter. 3 John 9. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Therefore, if I come, I'll call attention to his deeds and how he unjustly accuses us with wicked words. Notice, he is accusing the apostle, the apostles, at least the apostle John and people associated with them. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome brethren, welcome the brethren. 
He also stops those who would do so and throws them out of the church. So yes, there were heretics that emerged within the true church. And notice that the, the church was the right organization, that, uh, apparently a legitimate church organization originally, but then they wouldn't let true Christians be part of it. Now in the first and second centuries, a number of heretics arose who professed Christ. Uh, among them, we have a second century report about the followers of uh, Simon Magus. He's the one that the Apostle Peter condemned in Acts chapter 8. Uh, there's also Serinthius, Serinthius, who was condemned by the Apostle John. Then Marcion, who personally came to Rome, and Valentinus, who came to Rome from uh, Alexandria, Egypt, and Montanus. And the last four were condemned by church leaders in or based out of uh, Asia Minor. Now, when you go to look at early church history, there's a, a strange concept that comes up. I know it's a strange concept. Uh, I want to read something from uh, uh, the Journal of uh, Early Christian Studies from uh, a scholar uh, by the name of Boyne. He writes, The parting of ways between Judaism and Christianity, as it's been called, Ignatius of Antioch is traditionally seen as being in the forefront of that development. Indeed, it's clear today that even after Ignatius' time, at least other Christian communities also continue to insist upon maintaining these and other Jewish rituals, practices, so much so that scholars have begun to suspect that the ways never really departed as neatly as one's thought. And that's one of the problems when you try to look at church history. I recently read a couple of very <laughs> thick volumes, uh, a history of the church from a, a Roman Catholic writer. And they just kind of skip over this stuff. And the Protestant writers basically also basically say that, look, certain things happened right, right at the beginning, and uh, this is how we have what we have now. And that's not true. Anyway, getting back to this article... The result has been a much more nuanced picture of Christian identity and Jewish-Christian relations, including a more acute awareness of growing anti-Judaism in Christian thought in the 2nd and 3rd century. Now, I'm going to get to that later. Now, this guy mentioned Ignatius as the one who worked on the parting of the ways, but that's wrong. That's based upon a mistranslation of something Ignatius wrote and thinking that Ignatius was against keeping the biblical Sabbath, which he was not opposed to that. Uh, he had other writings that showed that he favored that, but based on a mistranslation, a lot of scholars, uh, particularly on the Protestant side, have clung to this as proof, but this is not proof. What Ignatius was doing was dealing with another heresy, and that was he, people who wanted to keep the Sabbath Judaically. Now, in case you're not unaware, the Jews added... Dozen scores, maybe be hundreds, I don't know the total number, of extra rules about keeping the Sabbath, which are not in the Bible. And what Ignatius condemned was keeping it Pharisaically, or Judaically, as he called. He was not saying you shouldn't keep the Sabbath or, or the Holy Days, because as we find other aspects of church history, People in Antioch continued to keep the biblical holy days uh, till at least uh, 210 to 11 AD. Now, by the way, Ignatius was writing 
somewhere around uh, uh, 110 AD. There's an argument about when it was. Now, Ignatius actually wrote a letter to Polycarp of Smyrna. And Polycarp, around 135, and Polycarp, for those who are unfamiliar with him, was put in charge by the apostles, the original apostles. Anyway, around 135 AD, Polycarp re reported about the many who professed Christ and went a changed way, which he called vanity. Now, that's some of the, we've so far been talking about some uh, Church of God leaders, but even supporters of the Church of Rome, such as uh, Justin, uh, Tertullian, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, they condemned Simon Magus, who I mentioned before, and his followers for doctrines which are now widely accepted by uh, the Greco-Romans, like what? Using statues for worship, revering a woman, inc using incantations, mysteries, mystic priests, claiming divine titles for leaders, accepting money for religious favors, preferring allegory and tradition over many aspects of scripture, uh, divorcing themselves from Christian biblical practices considered to be Jewish, and having a leader who wanted to be thought of as God or Christ on the earth. Now, in the late 2nd century, the Roman supporting historian Irenaeus wrote that the idea that the Old Testament laws are dissimilar and contrary to the gospel came from followers of Simon Magus. But we've got Protestants who promote that today. As a matter of fact, uh, we have a book, Hope of Salvation, How the Continuing Church of God Differs from Protestantism. If you're a Protestant, I challenge you to open your Bibles, read this particular book. This is a very documented book. I had a Protestant who doesn't want to look at it. She says she believes the Bible. I said, you, you should look at this book find out whether you truly do or not. Anyway, in uh, many ways, various Protestants are following after uh, Simon Magus. Anyway, Irenaeus essentially taught that Simon and his followers practiced lawlessness, like a lot of Protestants do. And Irenaeus also noted that it was the Apostle John from Ephesus and Polycarp from Smyrna, and those were both major cities in what's called Asia Minor, who strongly denounced Gnostic and similar heretics. Men such as Cerinthius, uh, Valentinus, and Marcion are considered by Greco-Roman Protestants and Church of God people to have been apostates or Gnostic teachers. But I want to talk for a little bit, a little bit here, about Marcus of Jerusalem. He's been accepted by them as supposedly a, a true church leader, but not in the Church of God. There's a basic misconception about early church history that many historians, scholars hold, and therefore uh, a lot of uh, Greco-Roman Protestants hold. The misconception is the early church didn't keep the Seventh-day Sabbath, didn't keep the Biblical Holy Days, and for another example, that they thought it was okay to eat biblically unclean meat. Yet none of this is the original case. You can read, for example, from uh, Socrates Scholasticus's uh, uh, Ecclesiastical History, from or I think it's the 5th century, uh, so for something a little more modern, the early 20th century theologian J.L.L. Ratton reported, something I will read. The early Church of Jerusalem retained most of the distinctive customs of the Jews, such as circumcision, kosher meats, 
the Jewish Sabbath, Jewish rites, and the worship of the temple. Our Lord himself lived the exterior life of a Jew, even so far as the observance of Jewish religious customs was concerned. The early church of Jerusalem followed his, Jesus' example. The Jews looked upon the Hebrew Christians in Jerusalem simply as a Jewish sect, which they called the sect of the Nazarenes. However, it's been essentially assumed by most scholars that since these practices, uh, the Sunday practices, etc., came up in the uh, second century, that they were original. But, and they started from the beginning, but that's not the case. And the reality is that some in Jerusalem, Asia Minor, and Antioch, and other places, fought those kind of changes. And we're going to go over that uh, in this sermon, at least some of this. Now, I mentioned uh, Marcus of Jerusalem. Now, before I do, I want to read something from the Roman Catholic supporting historian Eusebius. He says, talks about the chronology of the bishops of Jerusalem. He says, uh, that under the siege of the Jews, which took place under Hadrian, found before then there were 15 bishops in succession there, all of which are said to have been Hebrew descent, who received the knowledge of Christ in purity. So they were approved by those who were able to judge such matters, and they were de deemed worthy of the episcopate, or in other words, to be bishops or pastors. For the whole church consists of believing Hebrews who continued from the days of the apostles until the siege under Hadrian, which took place at this time, in which the siege the Jews, having rebelled against the Romans, were conquered after severe battles. And then he lists the different uh, 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 bishops by name, and I'm not going to, to go there. But I do want to read something the Apostle Paul wrote. Well, this is just all talking about Jews, but what about Gentiles? In 1 Thessalonians uh, 2, and this time I'll read from New King James, starting verse 13, the Apostle Paul wrote, to the Greek Thessalonians. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as, in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For we also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as the Judeans. Well, in Jerusalem, they were keeping uh, the Sabbath and the Holy Days, and those type of things. Now, after this Jewish revolt, which is called the uh, Bar Kokhba revolt, and we have more about that and what, what happened with the Jews in that in our book, uh, uh, Proof Jesus is the Messiah, so I'm not going to go over that uh, today. I want to read an 18th century report from the historian Edward Gibbon. It says, Hadrian, the emperor founded under the name of Aelia uh, Capitolina, a new city on Mount Zion, to which he gave the privileges of a county, colony. Now this city was actually Jerusalem. He renamed it. He didn't want to be called Jerusalem anymore because he's tired of dealing with Jews, rebelling against the Romans. So, so some who were there who claimed Christianity, quote, elected Marcus for their bishop, a prelate 
of the race of the Gentiles, and most probably either native of Italy or of some Latin province. At his persuasion, the most considerable part of the Christian congregation renounced the Mosaic law in the practice of which they had persevered over a century. So understand, it was not, okay, when Jesus uh, uh, died and was resurrected, that he got rid of the Sabbath holy days. No, they're keeping for another, for another, over another century. But it was by the sacrifice of their habits, by changing, by accepting heresy. They purchased a free admission into the colony of Hadrian. Yeah, Hadrian said you couldn't come in here if you kept the Sabbath and the holy days and wouldn't eat unclean meat and stuff like that. Anyway, it says, When the name and honors of the Church of Jerusalem had been restored to Mount Zion, the crimes of heresy and schism were imputed to the obscure remnant of the Nazarenes which refused to accompany their Latin bishop. So in other words, there was some kind of a split. Some were told about the changes, and we're going to go more into that. Some accepted them, some didn't. And the ones who didn't were then called the heretics. They were called the schismatics. They were probably considered a terrible cult, just like happens today for the continuing Church of God. Historian Gibbon continues by writing, it's been remarked with more ingenuity than truth that the virgin purity of the Church was never violated by schism or heresy before the reign of Trajan or Hadrian, about a hundred years after the death of Christ. So this is going on for over a century. Okay? Which proves that early Christians did not understand this book meant they weren't supposed to keep the Sabbath, the Holy Days, do away the Ten Commandments, eat unclean meat, etc. Yet you've got all kinds of, particularly Protestant scholars who seem to think that the Bible does that. Now, I will tip, tip my hat, if you will, I don't tend to wear hats, to the Roman Catholics because they don't say they got Sunday from the Bible. They say they just decided that you need to do it. And they say that it was one of their bishops around 180 who said it was okay to eat biblically unclean meat. So they don't claim to get it from the Bible. So at least they're not being wrong the way the Protestants are that way. I think they're wrong because they think they can just change the Bible or whatever. But the, the Protestants try to look for justification here that was not there. Early Christians did not understand that they were supposed to uh, go to church on Sunday, eat biblically unclean meats, don't keep the holy days. Um, it, it's in uh, various other things about the nature of God and other things that later the other churches uh, uh, picked up, the other heresies. Anyway, what history shows is that this Marcus guy implemented a lot of false doctrines that uh, the heretics held to, which is why we in the continuing church of God do not think that Marcus was a apostolic successor. But the Eastern Orthodox do. Now, th there was a second century writer called Hegesippus. And he reported that corruption in Jerusalem began a decade or two before Marcus. He reported that Jerusalem started off well, but there was one called the Buthus, and he had the doctrines of Simon Magus and Marcion, but that the uh, Jewish uh, Christians and leaders wouldn't accept them. So let me read a report from Eusebius' church history. He's referring to Hegesippus. He says, Hegesippus describes the beginning of the heresies which arose in his time in the following words. After James the Just suffered martyrdom, as the Lord 
had also the same account. Simeon, the son of the Lord's uncle, Clopas, was appointed the next bishop. All proposed him as a second bishop because he was a cousin of the Lord. Therefore, they called the church a virgin. It was not yet corrupted by vain discourses. The heretics didn't succeed at this stage. Says, but Thabuthus began to corrupt it. He also was sprung from the seven sects among the people, like Simon, from whom came the Simonians, and Cleobius, who come to Cleobians, and Dosesius, who come to Dosethians, and Gorthiasus, who comes to Gorthiani, and Mathabethus, from whom called the Mathabethians. So what we see happening is there was somebody who entered, but he wasn't fully accepted. But he started to pull stuff that Simon Magus and some other early heretics and apostates had mentioned. And so people within Jerusalem started to hear them. They didn't accept him at first. But after you hear him, 10 or 20 years later, when Marcus proposed some of them, oh yeah, okay, it's not a new idea, but it was a heresy. Now, the book of Revelation warns against improper alliance between the kings of the world and a compromised religion. But we see imperial pressures happened on Jerusalem, and Rome for that matter, after Thabuthus. Uh, I'm going to read something from an Arab source. And the faithful are called companions, and the Greco-Romans are called Christians. And this seems to happen about the time Marcus of Jerusalem rose up. This is from uh, uh, Shlomo Pines, the Jewish Christians of the early centuries of Christianity, according to a new source. So let me read through this, because this will give us an idea of what happened in Jerusalem, which also help you understand how heresies affected uh, the Greco-Romans in time. This, after him, disciples were with the Jews, and the children of Israel in the latter synagogues, and they observed the prayers and the feasts of the Jews in the same place as the Jews. However, there's a disagreement between them and the Jews regarding Christ. Right, the Christians believed in Christ, Jews did not. So the Jewish Christians and the Jews, they all looked the same. They were pretty much the same, except this guy is saying the beliefs. The Romans reigned over them. And the uh, Christians used to complain to the Romans about the Jews showed them their own weaknesses and appealed to their pity, and the Romans did pity them. This used to happen frequently. And the Romans said to the Christians, Between us and the Jews there's a pact which obligates us to not charge a religious, change the religious laws. But if you would abandon their laws and separate yourselves from them, praying as we do while facing the East, eating the things we eat, and regarding as permissible that which we consider as such, we would help you and make you powerful, and the Jews would find no way to harm you. On the contrary, you'd be more powerful than them. And the compromised Christians answered, We will do this. And the Romans said, Go, fetch your companions, the true Christians, and bring your book. And, the, and so they went to get their companions, informed of what had taken place between them and the Romans. He says, Bring the gospel and stand up so, so that we can go to them. But these companions, the faithful said to them, You've done ill. We're not permitted to let the Romans pollute the gospel. In giving a favorable answer to the Romans, you have accordingly departed from the religion. We therefore are no longer permitted to associate with you. And so they were called schismatics because they kept the original faith, but they wouldn't compromise and stick with the ones who changed, the heretics. So on the contrary, we're obliged to declare that there is nothing in common between us and you. 
And they prevented their taking possession of the gospel or getting access to it. In time of quarrel broke out, those mentioned in the first place went back to the Romans and said to them, Help us against these companions of ours before helping us against the Jews and take them from our behalf of our book. So they brought the Romans in, so these are supposed to be Christians. So there was a split. The militaristic ones went with the government, committed fornication with the kings of the world. And therefore, upon the companions whom they'd spoken fled the country. That's what Jesus said. When they persecute you in this city, go to another. And so that's what they had to do. And the Romans wrote concerning them to their governors in the districts of Mosul and whatever to search for them. And some were caught and burned. And others were killed. Yes, people who were supposedly Christians turned against the faithful and had them persecuted. As for those who had given a favorable answer to the Romans, they came together and took counsel how to replace the gospel, seeing it was lost to them. Thus the opinion of the gospel should be composed and established among them. A certain number of gospels were written. So what happens is they started, this is the time in the 2nd century, false gospels started to pile up. Because the heretics didn't have a lot of the truth. And this is something that seems like most scholars seem to miss, miss this stuff. And you see that the faithful would not uh, associate with, they were no longer in communion with, with the others. And they were separatists. But because of fear of losing their homes and livelihoods, and fear of the Romans, and for political expediency and licentious views, those are reasons that one group went with Marcus. Yet the faithful group had the true Gospels, the other made their own up. And this affected areas outside of uh, uh, Judea. I'd like to read something else regarding uh, Marcus, and, or, or what happened actually over this time. This is from Eusebius. And thus when the city had been emptied of the Jewish nation and suffered total destruction of, and, on its, of its ancient inhabitants, it was colonized and it, by a different race, and the Roman city uh, changed its name in honor of the emperor, Aelius uh, Adrian. Some say it's got to do with a god and another relative. And the church there was now composed of, of Gentiles. first one from the government was, after the bishops of circumcision, was Marcus. We're shown from the time first the church in Jerusalem was composed of Gentiles. Marcus uh, presided over them. And after him, there were others. Well, starting with him and others, we in the continuing church of God did not recognize them as uh, uh, true Christian leaders. Now, I want to read something from a theological historian who's well-known, his name is Johann uh, Lorenz Moshin, and uh, he wrote this in the early 1800s, I think, or maybe the late 1700s. In consequence of, the, of this favorable alteration of the sentiments of the Romans toward the Marcus, at whose insistence they were prevailed on to renounce the law of Moses, Nothing, in fact, can be better attested that there exists in Palestine two Christian churches, by the one of which was an observance of the Mosaic law was retained, by the other it was disregarded. The division amongst Christians of the Jewish origins did not take place before the time of Hadrian. So up until the time of Hadrian, 130, 135 so AD, there was one Christian church in Jerusalem. They kept 
the Sabbath, the holy days, other types of things. Yeah, there were some heretics who would visit them or had some ideas, but they didn't. Uh, there was no split. But then enough of it came when they were basically told, "You have to, if you want to live in Jerusalem, you want to keep your house, you want to keep your job. No Sabbath, no holy days. Pick up Sunday. Don't do Passover on the fourteenth. Stuff like that." What would you do? Well, most of the so-called Christians compromised. But the real ones fled. It can be ascertained that previous to Hadrian's reign, the Christians of Palestine were unanimous in observance to the observations of their forefathers. There be no doubt, there could be no doubt, therefore, that this separation originated in a major part of them being prevailed upon by Marcus to renounce Mosaic ritual by way of getting rid of the numerous inconveniences to which they were exposed. So God's laws were considered inconvenient. They were politically inconvenient. And procuring for themselves at reception as citizens in the newly formed colony of Elia Capitolina. Yes, one group split into two. One group remained faithful. The other changed. And it wasn't the elimination of Mosaic rituals that Marcus insisted on. Because much of that was gone earlier. You can read that in Hebrews, book of Hebrews. But it was improper political compromise that is what took place. Now, in the 19th century, uh, Joseph Barber Lightfoot wrote, he's a scholar, the church of Elia Capitolina was very differently constituted from the church of Pella and the church of Jerusalem. Not a few doubtless accepted the conqueror's terms, content to live henceforth as Gentiles in the new city of Hadrian. But there were others who hung on to the law of their forefathers. So yes, there were true Christians who would not change. They would not change. But many fell for it. We saw the same thing happened in the Worldwide Church of God uh, under the Koch administrations. People who thought we knew, who seemed to be the same faith of us, they went and accepted different terms. Now, the Eastern Orthodox Church in Jerusalem is kind of interesting. They've acknowledged that some change took place under Marcus, but they're kind of guarded about it. Uh, I went to one of their websites uh, a long time ago, and it said, in 135 AD, the Roman Emperor Hadrian builds on the ruins of Jerusalem a new Roman city and names it uh, Aelia Capitolina and permits Christians to come back. However, the Jewish are not permitted to come to town. And I liked when they used the term the Jewish. That was correct in a limited sense. It wasn't just normal Jews. It was also people who took Jewish biblical practices, like the Seventh-day Sabbath, that weren't allowed in. If you were Jewish, if you were a Jew, but would take the Sunday stuff and some of the other stuff, they seemed to accept that kind of thing. Changes took place in around 135 AD uh, because of Emperor Hadrian, and uh, this fear also seems to have affected people in Rome, because that's where Hadrian was based, uh, and probably also... Uh, Alexandria. I, was, I mentioned the historian uh, Gibbons said that the Nazarenes they had they retired from the ruins of uh, Jerusalem and they went to Pella and uh, they would go back and forth to the Holy City until they finally were kicked out. And uh, let me read some more from Gibbons. Under the reign of Hadrian, the desperate fanaticism of the Jews filled up the measure of their cala calamities. And the Romans, exacerbated by the repeated rebellions, exercised their rights of victory with unusual rigor. The emperor found, under the name 
uh, Elea Capitolina, a new city, uh, and denouncing the severest penalties on any of the Jewish people who would dare to approach his precincts, he put a vigilant guard garrison of Roman co- cohort to enforce the execution's orders. The Nazarenes had only one way of escape this, and the force of truth was on this occasion influenced by temporal advantages. So in other words, what Gibbons is saying is that, look, there was, the, the Christians were Nazarenes, but there was kind of a split. Because the temporal advantage, if you wanted to be able to live in Jerusalem like you did before, keep your job, etc., you had to change. So those that did said they elected Marcus. Prelate of the race of the Gentiles, probably a native of Italy, as I've said before, and I, I know I've said this before, I want to say it again, his persuasion, the most considerable part of the congregation renounced the Mosaic Law, the practice they did for over a century. And I want to read something from a historian by the name of Salo Baron. Says Hadrian, according to rabbinic sources, he prohibited public gatherings for instruction in Jewish law, forbade the proper observance of the Sabbath and holidays, and outlawed many important rituals. And as I say, this is what happened over there, and the followers of uh, Marcus did the wrong thing. They discounted uh, what Jude wrote in Jude three. which was to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Those who followed Marcus didn't do that. Well, uh, how could that have happened? In Revelation 2, you don't have to go there, uh, Jesus has a message to the uh, church of Ephesus. In verse 4, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you fall and repent and do the first works, else I'll come uh, quickly remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so the reality is some people lost their first love. They no longer had the love of the truth. They thought, well, you know, we have a relationship with Jesus. It's okay that we don't obey. Even though the book of Acts says God gives His Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. And the book of Hebrews says salvation is granted to those who obey they didn't want to believe that. They decided some other things are more important. Oh, before I go to some some other parts about uh, other heretics, I do want to say a couple of other one other thing here. I want to read something from the Catholic Encyclopedia of 1907. It says the shortest-lived apostolic church is that of Jerusalem. The holy city was destroyed by Hadrian and a new town was erected on its site. And the reason I'm mentioning that is right now there's discussions between the Vatican and the Eastern Orthodox and the Vatican seems like it's willing to accept uh, this particular type of uh, uh, succession. Yet, yet, they said before it was, was, not, was not valid. And... Uh, Irenaeus also said that uh, was a major saint, according to Greco-Roman, and even a lot of Protestants, said that uh, Jerusalem lost it from the time of Hadrian. Uh, it was no, no longer had succession. Yet, they want to go out and think that it does. Now, so I've spent a fair amount of time on 
Marcus partially to let you know that no, the original church did keep these things. But this wasn't the only kind of thing that was going on. There was a guy by the name of Serinthus, and he came to Asia Minor from uh, Egypt. Now, Irenaeus says, quote, on the authority of Polycarp, who was a Church of God leader, Christian, that, that the apostate, the, excuse me, on the authority of Polycarp, that the Apostle John once entered a bath to bathe, but learning that Serinthus was within, he sprang from the place and rushed out of the door, for he could not bear to remain in the same roof with him. And he advised those who were with him to do the same, saying, Let us flee, lest the bath fall, for Serinthus, the enemy of truth, is within. So now, how was this Serinthus guy an enemy of truth during the time of the Apostle John? So, even though John was clearly an Apostle, a lot of people didn't accept it. People don't always accept the roles God has for people, or as leaders. Anyway, one of the ways that uh, Serinthus was an enemy of truth is he claimed to get doctrines from angels. He might have been the first apostate who claimed to see an apparition or hear locutions, locutions they're called. You know, signs and lying wonders were warned about uh, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. And Serinthus, probably like Simon Magus, either had them or he claimed to have them. Let's go to Deuteronomy 13. Let's start in verse 2. This will be a bit different than your Bible because I'm going to read this from uh, the New Jerusalem Bible. Deuteronomy 13, verse 2. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, offering you some sign or wonder, and a sign of wonder comes about, and if he says to you, Let us follow other gods, hitherto unknown to you, and serve them, you must not listen to that prophet's words or that dreamer's dreams. Yahweh your God is testing you to know whether you, you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and all your soul. Now, the Hebrew word uh, is Yahweh. And some people have asked me about sacred names. Sometimes in the Old Testament I will use them because that was what the Hebrew says. But God did not re expect those to continue to be used on a regular basis because in the New Testament the so-called sacred names are not used. Uh, the New Testament was written in Greek. Those who claim you need to use the sacred names apparently don't believe that. They think it's written in either uh, Hebrew or Aramaic. But anyway, this translation for the Hebrew translates it. Now, despite warnings, many ended up accepting false teachings because of signs and wonders. Now, Irenaeus, I mentioned before, he wrote, Serinthus, represented Jesus as having not been born of a virgin, but as being the son of Mary and Joseph, according to the ordinary course of human generation. So this position of Serinthus clearly goes against Scripture. Luke 1, uh, verses 26 to 43, read about uh, the angel talking to Mary, God's Holy Spirit would come upon her, and that's how uh, uh, Jesus was conceived. But you would think that at the time of the early apostles, somebody wouldn't be so blatant to go against doctrine, but it happens, and it still happens today. Now, the Alexandrian bishop Dionysius uh, stated something about Serinthus as well. Serinthus fancied in the delights of the belly and what comes beneath the belly, that is which to say, in eating and drinking and marrying and other things under the guise of which he thought he could indulge his appetites with better grace. So, Serinthus is one who attempted to, now I'm going to quote Jude 4 from the New Jerusalem Bible. 
So Serenthus is one who attempted to, quote, pervert the grace of God, our God, to debauchery and deny all religion, rejecting our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So he was warned about that. He may have been one of the first to uh, promote biblically unclean meat consumption. Now he's also been reputed to do something else. There's an Armenian scholar named Ananias Sherek. He wrote around 600 A.D. The festival of the holy birth of Christ on the twelfth day before the feast of the baptism was not appointed by the holy apostles, nor their successors either, as it's clear from the canons. So we know that the Bible does not endorse celebrating Jesus' day of birth, and certainly not on December 25th, which is what this works out to be. Okay, the twelfth day before the Feast of Baptism, which is January 6th, according to the Romans. But many years after they're fixing the canons, the festival, this festival was invented. Okay, Christmas was invented. As some say, by the disciples of the heretic Serenthus, the same guy who said Jesus was not conceived by the Holy Spirit and was accepted by the Greeks because they were fond of festivals and most fervent in piety, and by them it was spread and diffused all over the world. But in the days of the Holy Constantine, at the Holy Council of Nicaea, this festival was not received by the Holy Fathers. So this guy apparently likes Constantine, and he's whatever. It was shortly after the Council of Nicaea that Emperor Constantine endorsed December 25th uh, to celebrate Christmas, because Constantine was a sun god worshiper. Uh, if he was baptized, supposedly he was baptized the day on his deathbed, so this is before his deathbed, he declared December 25th, uh, the sun god's birthday, Jesus' birthday, and apparently there was some tradition that perhaps Serenthus or his people came up with it. And I figure that Serenthus probably picked this because, or his people picked it, because there was a party going on all that time of year called Saturnalia, plus there was the uh, sun god's birthday at the same time, so... That's what he did. He said he, he, was, he liked to party. And that was one of the ways that he did that. Now, there's another heretic by the name of Valentinus. And someday, maybe I'll do an entire sermon about him. But anyway, he was a second century heretic. He attempted to blend a lot of uh, pagan Gnosticism with what he perceived to be the Christian faith. Now, he came from Alexandria, Egypt, and he went to Rome. And he and his followers clearly believed in merging Greek pagan philosophy with Christianity. They believed in their tradition over the Bible. They believed in having higher knowledge. They endorsed a non-immersion form of baptism. They developed the idea that God existed in three hypothe uh, hypostases. He taught that Jesus was really not made of flesh. And he taught Jesus was a defect. And he taught that man was not fashioned from the earth. And that's according to Roman Catholic saints, by the way. This is from uh, Irenaeus against heresies and Hippolytus, a uh, refutation against all heresies. Now the Catholic Encyclopedia states, quote, Valentinus, the best known and most influential of the Gnostic heretics, he went to Rome and he allied himself with the Orthodox community in Rome. In other words, he went to the Church of Rome and was part of the Church of Rome. His system is obviously an attempt to amalgamate Greek and Oriental speculations in the most fantastic kind with Christian ideas. He was especially indebted to Plato. 
So you can look this up in the Catholic Encyclopedia, what I just read. It's also in uh, the book I mentioned, Beliefs of the Original Catholic Church. And he was accepted for a long time. And he blended paganism in with uh, what's called Christianity. Now the Greco-Roman bishop, Marcellus of uh, Ansara, said that his teachings that God had corrupted the early church. Uh, Valentinus the Heresic corrupted the church of God. He was the first to invent three hypostases and the three persons of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he fills this from Plato. Now Valentinus, by the way, so he was allowed to be in the Church of Rome, even though he was a heretic. And, by the way, when Polycarpus Smyrna was a very old man, probably over 100 or close to 100, he went to Rome. And he denounced Valentinus. And so Polycarp denounced the first person affiliated with Christianity to teach the Trinitarian concept of three hypostases or to make some kind of equality or some kind of a trinity, the three alleged persons of God. I should also mention that Polycarp, Melito of, of Sardis, Theophilus of Antioch, and the Apostle John specifically referred to both the Father and the Word of the Son as God, but never the Holy Spirit as God. Ignatius of Antioch did the same in his letters to the Ephesians and the Smyrnians. And even uh, modern scholars, like uh, Monroe, who wrote a book about the Smyrnians, wrote, As for the Binitarian confessional formula, which confesses the Father and the Son, we likewise find examples in Polycarp and Ignatius. So in other words, Polycarp was not Trinitarian, nor was Ignatius. And Polycarp denounced Valentinus, who was Trinitarian, yet he was tolerated for decades by the Church of Rome, and his ideas eventually started to rub off. Again, Valentinus adopted uh, this idea that mixing pagan philosophy in would be a good thing. Uh, throw up some scriptures out every now and then, and that's what he did. Now, many heretics basically taught their ideas about the person of Jesus Christ, but they didn't understand him or his message. And versions of an other or different gospel have infected uh, what's often called Christianity outside the Church of God. Now, Jesus preached the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. You see that in Mark 1. Now, kingdoms require a king, a territory, and subjects and laws. Now, the good news is that God is going to come to the earth. I'm looking for a book on this. And his kingdom will eliminate uh, sorrow and pain, as it says in Revelation 21, verse 4. And we have a free booklet called The Gospel of the Kingdom of God. This booklet is available at the ccog.org website, like I said. But also, if you instead of going to the literature tab, if you go straight down on the page far enough, you'll find over 100 different languages that this book has been translated in. So uh, if you're more comfortable with other languages or know others who want to know more about the true gospel, the original gospel, not the gospel of Valentinus or Marcus or Serenthus, etc., or Simon Magus, this free booklet is available. Now, to be part of the kingdom requires repentance of sin, the sacrifice of Jesus, the grace of God, and the acceptance of Jesus as your Savior, as well as proper baptism and keeping the commandments 
as we're supposed to walk just as he walked, as it says in First John uh, three. First John two. I'm sorry. Uh, we're also supposed to have to be a Christian to have the Spirit of God and let Christ live His life in us, as we can read in Galatians two twenty. The fact that sinners will be saved after conversion is also part of the gospel. Now, in Galatians, let's go there. This I will read from the New King James. We're going to go to Galatians chapter 1. Some of these scriptures I have other places in the book. So when I printed out some of the pages of the book, I didn't uh, print this out again because I didn't want to put it in multiple times. Galatians 1, starting in verse 6. Paul's talking to the Galatians. I marvel you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. You'd think original people wouldn't do it, but some did. To a different gospel, which is not another, but there's someone to trouble you, want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, so true apostles or true church leaders, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you other which we preach to you, let them be accursed. As I said before, so say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel whether you've received, let him be accursed. But sadly, you may have heard the wrong gospel because you may have been influenced by people who over a thousand years ago, close to two thousand years ago, were influencing churches and infecting churches. According to Eusebius, by a Justin Martyr, Simon Magus led many people away, many people of the inhabitants of Rome astray. So Justin Martyr said, Simon Magus led many people of the inhabitants of Rome astray. And there are also Nicolaitans that the uh, book of Revelation talks about who tried to turn the grace of the gospel into uh, lasciviousness. And Irenaeus wrote about them as well. Now, there's an apostate by the name of uh, Marcion. Now, I talk about Marcion a lot in both of these books. So I'm not going to devote uh, much of this sermon to, to Marcion. But Marcion's been called the first Protestant, by the way. And you say, well, if you're Protestant, well, maybe he was good. No, if you look at what he taught, you realize there's no way you could claim to be a Christian and follow Marcion. Yet, because nothing resembling modern Protestantism uh, existed in terms of the early church, the early church people were not like Protestants uh, today, uh, they had to latch on to somebody, and they latched on to Marcion. And Marcion's also mentioned in this particular book uh, as well, in various places. Marcion was an apostate who was also condemned by Polycarpus Smyrna, but he was tolerated also by the Church of Rome for decades. He denied Jesus. As I mentioned before, some scholars considered him to be the first Protestant. Marcion brought forth another gospel, turning grace into lasciviousness. See, uh, supposedly eliminating the Sabbath and other commandments. He claimed Christianity was too Jewish. So, this is we've got Marcus who rose up, who, because of Emperor Hadrian and cowardice and fear, said, hey, look, we got to not be so Jewish. Then you've got Marcion saying the same thing over in Rome. Now, in Rome, they were concerned about it because of the revolts by the Jews as well. So, some of this anti-Semitism, anti-biblical Christianity was getting acceptance. Uh, Marcion, by the way, also claimed that there was no coming kingdom of God. 
Now, as far as being too Jewish goes, the unbaptized, sun-worshipping Emperor Constantine declared after making a declaration about a Sunday Passover, and Passover, by the way, is supposed to be on the 14th day of the first month of the biblical year. Uh, we have information about the biblical holy days in this particular book, uh, to keep God's holy days or demonic holidays. Uh, Constantine didn't uh, like that. Uh, and he actually said, after changing the date to, su- to uh, Sunday, let us have nothing in common with the detestable and Jewish crowd who received from our Savior a different way. But Jesus kept Passover on the 14th. He didn't do it on Sunday. And people know that. Scholars know that. Furthermore, he avoided unclean meat. He kept the seven-day Sabbath. He kept other biblical holy days. Constantine didn't endorse that. As a matter of fact, in Jerusalem area, in Constantine's time, some of the faithful had come back. And basically Constantine said, if you don't eat a biblically unclean meat, we'll kill you. Now, regarding Roman emperors and religious compromise, I want to read something from the Catholic Encyclopedia. This is under the article Constantine the Great. Many emperors yielded to the delusion that they could unite all their subjects in the adoration of the one sun god who combined in himself the father god of the Christians and the much worse of Mithras, the sun god. Thus the emperor could be founded anew on unity of religion. Even Constantine, for a time, cherished this mistaken belief. Yes, Emperor Constantine, that's what he was trying to do. People think, oh, he was just trying to make the world Christian. No, he wanted to combine Mithraism, sun god worship, in with what he claimed to be Christianity. Now, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 17, it warns against compromise between a church and the kings of this world. I'll read this in the New Jerusalem Bible. Revelation 17, starting in verse 1. One of the seven angels had seven bowls came to speak to me and said, Come here, and I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who is enthroned besides abundant waters, by whom all the kings of the earth have prostituted themselves, and who has made all the population of the world drunk with the wine of her adultery. Adultery. We're just talking about just physical adultery? No, I think this is spiritual compromise here. And this is consistent with what the Apostle James wrote. Go to James chapter 4, start in verse 4. James 4, verse 4. James was inspired to write, Adulterers, know you not that the friendship of this world is the, en- is the enemy of God? This is from Dewey Rames. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of this world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, to envy the Spirit, covet that which dwells in you? Yet from no later than those associated with Marcus of Jerusalem, through Emperor Constantine and beyond, we see people who profess Christianity, they compromise with the kings of this world. But because much of this began in the 2nd through 4th centuries, most seem to think this type of compromise is proper. While it is established tradition, it's in opposition to the Bible, and has led to Babylonian confusion amongst those, uh, because the world doesn't understand what true Christianity is all about. That being said, true Christian leaders did contend for the original faith. We have a chart uh, that's in the book. 
and uh, uh, actually to this book. Okay, so it's like the book, this book I'm talking about. I'll briefly go through the chart and then uh, just make make some uh, comments here. In the in the first and second century, you've got people rising up like Simon Magus, the, the Nicolaitans, Marcion, Montanus, and Valentinus, and they promoted a different gospel. They were warned about and condemned by New Testament writers, but also people like Polycarpus Smyrna, Melito Sardis, uh, Thracius, uh, uh, and Theophilus, all of which were Church of God leaders. Sadly, variations of this, uh, false, these false gospels, have been accepted by most who profess Christ these days. Then they want to go into Serinthus. I have this in, uh, maybe I should take that order, in semi-order here. He was into uh, allegory, improper tradition, improper festivals, and apparitions should be a source of doctrine. And he was denounced by the Apostle John, yet amongst the Greco-Romans, they still accept apparitions as a source of uh, doctrine to, to some degree. By the way, where the term Holy Trinity came from was from somebody who claimed to see an apparition in the 3rd century. Now, Marcus of Jerusalem, you know, he was against the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, uh, keeping Passover on the 14th, uh, thought you could eat unclean meat. And, you know, the Nazarenes wouldn't go along with this. They fled, and some of them ended up in Asia Minor. But most of uh, Marcus's changes are been adopted or tolerated by the Greco-Roman churches. I mentioned Marcion, who thought that the Sabbath and Ten Commandments were done away. And he was denounced by Polycarp, as well as by Theophilus and Serapion. But uh, Rome, the Greco-Roman Protestants, accept uh, the Sabbath change. Um, there's arguments about the Ten Commandments. Uh, I will basically mention that uh, many who claim to keep the Ten Commandments don't really do so. And I'm going to hold up in a book. That's not the one I wanted. So give me a moment since I've mentioned I will hold it. I plan on holding up. Here it is. This talks about the mystery of iniquity or mystery of lawlessness. It talks about uh, Greco-Roman Protestants, how they have different ways, depending on their faith, how they don't keep the Ten Commandments like the early church did. Anyway, uh, the chart goes through uh, more and more and more. The reality is, with early early Christians, uh, they did baptism by immersion. But people like Valentinus were opposed to that. They knew they had the complete Bible, but people like Marcion were opposed to it. They held a binitarian view. But people like Valentinus had a different idea. They didn't celebrate birthdays. People like Serenthus saw Christmas should be celebrated, but Christians didn't do that. Uh, they uh, didn't believe in keeping the holy days, but early Christians did so. They changed the gospel. Um, some of them taught that uh, you go to heaven upon death, but that was condemned actually by Justin Martyr. And I mentioned things like Sabbath and the Trinity and all those type of, type of things. And I want to kind of just summarize this to make it clearer in a, in a different way. And that is, there's this misconception about church history. And the misconception is that the Apostle Paul rose up, told people, now forget anything that's Jewish. Uh, no, forget the Sabbath and the Holy Days. Uh, eat unclean meat and things like that. And this is a good thing to do. But if you look in the Bible... You'll see in the book of Acts that Paul's custom was to preach on the Sabbath. 
Well, that was because he was a Jew and he just wanted to reach Jews. No, he wanted to reach Gentiles too. And he did preach on the Sabbath, and he kept the Sabbath. But people want to say, no, Paul did away with all that. And if you read what Jesus said, he said, don't think I came to do away with the law. People say that, well, he fulfilled it. Okay. But actually, he made it fuller. When he gave his Sermon on the Mount, he was telling us not just to be picky about some letter of the law, but the whole spirit of the law. Don't, don't just not kill. Don't want other people to hurt each other. Okay? Etc. Etc. So anyway, Paul didn't do away with this stuff. Paul actually wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 to imitate him as he imitated Jesus. Jesus kept uh, what are considered to be Jewish practices. Jesus condemned the additional burden that the lawyers and the Pharisees had put on during his time. He said, woe to them. You put on burdens on others. You won't lift a finger to help them, etc. And that's what Paul had to deal with. That's what Peter was also would deal with. But furthermore, people such as Ignatius of Antioch were talking about that's the problem, not the other way around. Not that the problem is keeping the Sabbath, but to be pharisaical. And that was another heresy that had to be done. So basically what happened was the true Christians kept to the same faith that the original apostles did. Historians and scholars know that for the first hundred years in Jerusalem, all the leaders were uh, uh, Jews. Uh, they kept biblical holy days, uh, Sabbath, uh, clean and clean meats, uh, etc. There was no doubt about that. But it didn't change until political compromise hit. Marcus uh, persuaded people to compromise with, with the world despite the fact the Bible warns to not love the world, become adulterers with the world, commit fornication with the kings of the world. That's what happened. Now at the same time, there are other heretics who rose up all over, had different ideas. Some of them affected Rome and Alexandria and other places. And by the second century, so just over 100 years after uh, Jesus was resurrected, you had people in various places eating unclean meat from a, a book uh, falsely named the Epistle of Barnabas they were trying to say that the reason you don't eat unclean meat is because it's just an allegory and so in Alexandria they were probably eating unclean meat around that time probably around 135, 140 time frame around the same time Hadrian was around and then we also have uh, several decades later the Church of Rome under supposedly under Bishop Eleutherus around 180 A.D declaring that it was okay to eat biblically unclean meat. Which means, of course, for the first 150 or 60, roughly 150 years, even the Church of Rome didn't think they were supposed to do that. But Polycarp visited Rome somewhere around 155 to 165 AD. No one knows exactly. Somewhere in that time period. And when he went, he denounced heretics. He denounced uh, uh, Marcion, he denounced Valentinus, that they were tolerated by Rome even decades after Polycarp left. Uh, the Bible warns about uh, having keeping bad company, and bad communication can affect you. And in time, this is what happened. 
So the reality is, there was no party, the only party of the ways, which scholars refer to, was not a parting of, from Judaism to uh, Gentilism, but basically a parting of the way from true Christianity to a different version, a heretical version. And there were actually several, multiple heretical versions. Again, there was a kind of a pharisaical version, or several of those, among some who were called Ibionites. Uh, some of those didn't believe uh, in Jesus as uh, Messiah and certain things about him, uh, as far as his birth and all that kind of stuff. They kind of professed Jesus, but didn't really believe it. Kept a variety of these uh, Judaical, pharisaical practices. Now, I want to just talk for a moment about a key doctrine or central doctrine that the Greco-Romans claim to hold, and that's got to do with the Trinity. And I'll probably talk about this again in the future. But from a historical perspective, I wonder what the Greco-Roman position was. You know, why do they? What, how do they explain away what happened? So first, let me tell you what happened, and then I'm going to tell you how they explain it away. What happened was the early church was not Trinitarian. Scholars know that. Even Trinitarian scholars will basically say the church was trying to figure it out. They'd like to think the church was always Trinitarian, but if you look at early writings, they were not. It's clear that people such as Polycarp, Melito, and Ignatius, etc., were what we call Benetarian. They believed the Father was God, Jesus was God, the Holy Spirit was the power of God. This is clear from many writings from many people that the Greco-Romans considered to be saints. But in the second century, because of the influence from Plato, Valentinus proposed some type of Trinitarianism, and he was associated with uh, the Church of Rome. But even that time, it was not accepted. And in the third century, a guy by the name of uh, Gregory, uh, Gregory the Wonder Worker, claimed to have apparitions of Mary, and he started to push the Holy Trinity. But even that wasn't quite enough to, uh, to get it accepted. And then Emperor Constantine held a council in 325, and that council consisted of, according to Greco-Roman records, about 10% of the people who were Unitarian, about uh, 15%, 10 or 15% who were Trinitarian, and the rest were uh, Benetarian or Semi-Arian. So they were the majority. And they basically condemned Unitarianism. And then back in uh, 381 AD, Emperor Theodosius held a council, Council of Constantinople, where they declared or accepted the Trinity was the doctrine. Now, what's interesting is the Roman Catholic Church and the Catholic Encyclopedia will tell you that the Benetarians or the Semi-Arians were the conservative majority in the East. So they recognized that most professing Christian leaders in the 4th century were Benetarian. Yet, when I've looked into this, you know, how did they get around what really happened? They've changed it. Here's what they say. They say, some scriptures weren't super clear, but we were getting toward uh, Trinitarianism. And people were kind of Trinitarian, they just didn't quite understand what it was. But in the uh, they were, but the, the, the semi-Arians or Benetarians were never the majority until the 4th century. No, the Benetarian semi-Arians always were. What, they, what the Greco-Roman Trinitarians claim is that because Arius, a Unitarian, arose, 
because he arose. Uh, people said he was wrong, but they liked some of his arguments, so they became Benetarian, and that's how most people were Benetarian for roughly 25 to 50, 60, 70 years, whichever most you want to say it. And then, it, then finally, they came to their senses, and they all became uh, Trinitarian. And the reality is, that's not what happened. The reality is, the true church was uh, semi-Aryan or Benetarian uh, from the beginning. It was only because the true church tolerated tolerated people like Valentinus. And there's somebody else I mentioned before. There's a guy by the name of Montanus. And Montanus also had a Trinitarian view. And the Church of Rome said at first when Montanus was with him, he didn't have any bad doctrines. Well, he had the Trinity one from the beginning. And if you look at Greco-Roman writings, you will not find any of their early saints uh, or, or popes, if you will, what do they, or what do they call popes, actually taught uh, Trinitarianism. It wasn't until around the end of the second, first part of the third century, you see something that's sort of looking kind of like that. But that only happened because, in my opinion, they were influenced by Plato, Valentinus, and Montanus. Now eventually, by the way, the Greco-Romans, meaning the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, did turn against did turn against uh, Montanus and Valentinus, yet they had been corrupted by them, as uh, Marcellus, who I read about before, said. So in terms of heresies or heretics, basically what happened is, a little happened a little at a time. Something here, something there. Wasn't enough to get people to change. But then when political expediency happened, in other words, you've got to lose your house or your you can't live in your own town, you can't have your own job unless you change. People who didn't think they'd been affected by uh, the corruption did get corrupted by it. And then they changed and it's been going on so long now, people who've been brought up in it think that this is all normal. Uh, that uh, the true church always uh, went for Sunday, that uh, uh, Christmas, is, uh, Christmas and Easter or early Christian holidays, for example, and the true church was uh, Trinitarian. Yet none of that's true. I urge you to, if you've got a Bible, to get your Bible and read one or both of these uh, books that I held up before and look to see, is your faith really based upon the Word of God and the original teachings of the church or influences by heretics and apostates. Remember, the New Testament says to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And that is what we in the continuing Church of God are striving to do and urge you to do as well. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God.